When the dices are twice as nices. When the nether deep calls you to adventure. When it all sounds a little familiar. That is when heroes rise. You stand between me and my lord and kin. Be gone. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. Welcome, brave adventurers, to Heroes Rise. I'm Ostron, and joining us on our quest this evening are two of the wisest adventurers in the land. I'm Ryu. And I'm Lennon. And this is the 204th entry into our chronicle, recorded on Saturday, March 19th, and released Wednesday, March 23rd, over at HeroesRisePodcast.com. So, Lennon, what's in store for our brave adventurers this week? In this week's Adventurers Pack, Ryu shows us some nice dice. Nye-die? Nices dices? I don't know what the plural is. Anyway, stop now. Next, we check out some D&D news as we give you our first impressions of Critical Role, Call of the Netherdeep, and speculate on a recent teaser image from Wizards of the Coast. With all the talk on Critical Role, we thought it would be a good idea to head into the archives of Candlekeep for a rerun of Excursion to Exandria before finally heading over to the Scrying Pool to see what you all have to say. That takes care of all the introductions, so let's take a look at what's in our adventures packs. You always carry this machine bag? If we're going to get out of here, we're not going to need a few things. Name one thing you're going to need the stupid roll for. So this may surprise you, but I really like dice. And because of that, I also follow a lot of handmade dice shops on Instagram. And today I want to introduce you to one of them. And even though my daughter of two English teacher's brain is somewhat screaming at the name of the shop, Merlin's Dices has some of the prettiest dice that I've ever seen. One of the reasons that I like handmade dice shops like Merlin's Dices is that in comparison with larger dice sellers, I tend to see a lot more color play and experimentation in the resin. And a lot of the sets at Merlin's Dices have some pretty unique patterns and color combos, and they just look so good. But what I love most about handmade shops like this one is that they sometimes take commissions. So you can request a completely unique set of dice that's all you. And if you want to see what I'm talking about, just head over to Merlin's Dice's Instagram page and check it out. They recently finished a commission for a Final Fantasy themed set where the dice faces are numbered in Roman numerals and the colorway is just wow. They've also done a few Imperial Crest commissions, that's uh, Star Wars Imperials, and there are sets with dragon eyes, sets with furled fire effects, there's even a set that they made by filling up the clear resin with coffee beans and another white resin to resemble milk. The creativity of the shop just blows me away. So I've always been partial to the idea of Dice's art, but the sets at Merlin's Dice's, they are definitely artistic. They don't have any on their site at the moment, but they do also make chunks, which are the really big 40 millimeter plus D20s. And they also make some of their own masters and molds, so that they have some more unique dice shapes in some of the sets and uh, custom numberings and icons. Now, as is the nature of handmade goods, these dice are being made by one person. So many of the sets are either one-offs or are part of a very limited stock pool. So if you like one of the sets at Merlin's Dices, get it while you can. And even though I commended Ostron last week for not breaking our wallets, 
These dice sets suffer from another unfortunate side effect of handmade goods, and that is that they are not cheap. The sets range from 25 to 35 euros for the raws. And if you don't know what raws are, that's when the dice are straight out of the mold. They're not polished yet and they haven't been inked. And then they go all the way up to 85 euros for the finished sets, which means that the commissioned sets are probably in the range of 100 euros plus. And while this isn't unusual for commission sets or handmade sets in general, it is something to at least be aware of before you buy. But buying from small handmade shops like Merlin's Dices are almost a guarantee that your dice will be as unique as you are. So maybe that could justify the cost for you. I mean, that was the almost immediate con I noticed, is that these are very, very pretty dice. And that's a con? Well, I'm getting there. There's okay. Well, <laughs> These are very, very pretty dice, and they're mostly unique patterns. Like, I haven't seen these replicated anywhere else. But at the end of the day, they're acrylic dice being sold at the price of, like, gemstone dice. And even there, you can find some gemstone sets that sell for cheaper than these do. I understand it's an independent shop, and as far as I can tell, there's one creator at work here. But... Yeah, it's it's tough for me to to justify dropping this kind of cash on the dice, even though many of them are pretty. Like I I really actually like the set that's called the Friday Night Dice. They're sort of glittery black and fuchsia and deep purple. They look like they might be a little hard to read, but that can be fixed with some paint. Well, I'm pretty sure that that picture is completely uninked as well. Right. So anyway, yeah, those are really nice looking dice and they caught my eye. But like I said, the price on them is just, for me at least, it's an immediate no thank you, which, you know, given the things I cover. <laughs> so I agree with you on their regular sets that they have on the website face, but the ability to have a completely unique dice set commissioned is what really drew me to this. Yeah, and that's obviously a benefit if that's what you're looking for. It's, yeah. like you said, better to go with somebody independent who can both give you good customer service and you'd be supporting their artwork. Did you happen to look at the Instagram page? I did not. A lot of their custom sets are on there and they, they're really nice. I said, I will take a look while Lennon gives us his thought. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, the Final Fantasy dice just looked really nice. Uh, those were a custom set as well, like you were saying. But everything about them just... Like, the, the dice maker seems to actually understand and grab the essence of what they were trying to represent with these Final Fantasy dice. And it's not just the, the fonts that they shows but it's like the color combinations and the way that they've used certain shapes to represent certain games it kind of really comes across in that i i still i am kind of with ostron though like for a standard acrylic set if it was half the price i would consider it as something special at the price that it's at it is hard to justify purchasing however again just going with what you were saying Ryu, for a custom set these are gorgeous, especially if you want something that's a little bit different for 
for example, playing the uh, Star Wars game where you want the dice to have the custom seals on them. Things like that, this is absolutely amazing. So if there was some sort of... I, I don't know, I almost... I don't want to say these are too good for D&D, but I think <laughs> if you're doing something specific where you want a very custom set of dice, these are amazing. Yeah, like I'm, I'm thinking if you wanted to do a fantasy flight thing and yes. make dice with custom faces and a, a unique design on them for whatever reason, whether you're inventing a new mechanic in D&D that you want special dice for, or even like if you're building a game that needs special dice, I would definitely say go with this shop. And doubly so if it's something that you want to get as a very special gift for someone like there's a set of dice on their instagram page that has bb8s in the dice and that is super cool and you won't get that anywhere else so yeah see the more that i talk about this the more ideas i keep coming up with and think oh actually this would make a good gift for so and so or i could get a set made like this and dang it ryu <laughs> you're welcome <laughs> some of these look so edible as well <laughs> no don't eat the resin I mean, it'll be fine, you won't. <laughs> yeah. Links to Merlin's Dices can be found in our show notes, but is there something that's an absolute must-have at your tables? Found a cool app, book, or other item you'd like to share with other adventurers and dungeon masters? If so, let us know about it on social media at Heroes Rise D&D or by emailing sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. But for now, let's check out some D&D news. Sire, uh, I have news. And what sort of news do you have? It's not bad news, is it? No, I can't take bad news. Furniture all over town has been turning into monsters. Critical Role, Call of the Netherdeep has been released and is available now on all good digital marketplaces, big box stores, and friendly local gaming stores near you. Now, as this is an adventure, we're going to try to keep things as spoiler-free as possible and stick to discussing cool mechanics, magic items, and monsters rather than cool story beats, but if you want to go into the book completely blind, then you might want to skip ahead until we start talking about book titles seen through distorted crystals. Still with us? Great! Call of the Netherdeep is an epic critical role campaign for the world's greatest role-playing game. What a tagline, wizards. What a tagline. Having said that, this is essentially exactly what you are going to be in for. This release is very squarely aimed at critical role fans who know and love critical role, to the point that in the intro it even says that your players will struggle if they don't know the world of critical role, and suggests that you also purchase the Explorer's Guide to Wildmount if you need any more information about the world of Exandria. Outside of the locations or lore specifically needed for this adventure, it will give you nothing. And although it doesn't happen often, the adventure does like to drop little touchstones here and there that reference the Critical Role streaming campaigns. So if your players get curious, you might find yourself needing to look up information not covered in this book at the table. The book itself is split up into an introduction, seven chapters, six appendices, and the credits, and is designed to take characters from 3rd to 12th level. The introduction is further subdivided down into a very brief background about the world of Exandria, highlighting the locations and key lore needed for this adventure, then proceeds with a story overview and flowchart on running the adventure, including guidance on underwater adventures and swimming. It then continues on with information on Ruidium corruption, we'll get back to that in a moment, before moving on to the details of the rival adventuring party that will be challenging your adventuring party throughout the adventure. 
Finally, the introduction finishes with advice on character creation in the world of Exandria, which, as Lennon said earlier, boils down to if you don't know Critical Role, you're going to struggle to tie yourself to the world, and ends with a pronunciation guide for everything in the book. It also has a sidebar that mentions DMs aren't infallible and you will no doubt make mistakes, so don't worry about memorizing everything in the book and adventure, just make sure your players are having fun. So, let's talk about Ruridium, which, if you're a fan of Critical Role, you wouldn't have heard of either, as this is something created entirely new for Call of the Netherdeep. However, you'll find it very similar to some of the things that happened in Campaign 2. Essentially, Ruridium is an element that originates in the Netherdeep and grants additional magical energies to anything that comes into contact with it. For example, if you expose a magic item to it, they become even more powerful, and even regular items can be upgraded and unlock magical properties by utilizing Ruridium. In keeping with its magical nature, Ruridium can also be used in place of spell components worth up to 500 gold pieces. So for example, if your cleric wants or needs to cast Revivify on a fellow adventurer but doesn't have the diamond, they could decide to use any Ruridium they've acquired in its place. However, as you might have guessed, all of this comes at a cost. Exposure to Ruridium causes characters to immediately make a charisma saving throw versus a DC that varies based on the virulence of the Ruridium. Should the characters fail, they immediately gain one point of exhaustion, and from that point on, the character will take 1d10 psychic damage anytime their exhaustion is increased or decreased by one until the corruption has ended. Further, based on the progression of the corruption, physical signs will manifest on the creature, such as pulsing crimson veins spread across the creature's skin, and stubby spurs of iridium crystal protrude from the creature's body. As well as the physical signs of iridium exposure, there are also emotional signs, greatly amplifying feelings of regret, yearning, rage, and despair. So how do you end the corruption? Well, it's not easy. Only a wish spell or divine intervention can cure a creature's corruption, even if you reduce all levels of exhaustion. The other option is for the players to complete the adventure successfully, which will remove all Ruridium corruption. However, given that this adventure has multiple endings, this isn't guaranteed. Oh, did we forget to say this adventure has multiple endings? Yeah, it's got multiple endings. One neutral, one bad, and one good, and they'll specifically need the good ending if they want to be free of corruption. So the cleric could choose to cast Revivify, but will be permanently paying the cost for that choice as the adventure continues. Chapters 1 through 7 are all about the story, so for the sake of spoilers we'll be skipping right along to the appendices, and these are as follows. Appendix A contains all the creatures, Appendix B has the magic items, Appendix C has the medals of merit, Appendix D has fragments of suffering, Appendix E contains the story concept art, and Appendix F contains the poster map. The Creatures section has full stats for the rival adventurer party at three different tiers, corresponding to the different levels that you'll be encountering them at on the adventure. Alongside the stat blocks, it also has some useful information for role-playing each individual rival, including, for example, things that they may say in battle. It then has 14-ish other creatures unique to Exandria, including some reprints from Explorer's Guide to Wildmount, but also features stats for the monastics of the Cobalt Soul and occultists of the Vermilion Dream. Appendix B gives us 15 new magic items, including one vestige of divergence, aka Critical Role's One Ring level artifacts, and a handful of Ruidium-infused items. Appendix C then gives you printable cards that you can cut out and hand to your players should they acquire any of the medals presented in the magic item section, and Appendix D gives you similar printable cards for the fragments of suffering your players will encounter. Finally, Appendices E and F provide some concept art from the development of the book and a poster map of Ancarel. Yeah, so I have an immediate problem with the religious orders. 
So the monastics of the Cobalt Soul and the occultists of the Vermilion Dream. Right. Red and blue are not opposing colors on the color wheel. <laughs> well, like, I mean, I realize there aren't a lot of really fancy sounding words for orange, but come on. Sure. But you also know that like red versus blue, aside from being, you know, just one of the most famous internet machinima projects ever, is <laughs> also pretty much just how your government functions. Yeah, well, yes, but you know, it's it's also how most uh PvP matches are in RTS games. Yep, red versus blue. So think of it more like team colours rather than spectrographic colours. Fine. <laughs> Any other problems um, that we can just immediately deflate for you, sir? No. Um, okay. The rest of it was actually stuff that I sort of liked. I like Ruidium. Yes, I like Ruidium too. Um, it's an interest... I mean... I like it, but it, I hate it. Well, yes. <laughs> I can't say it's 100% unique because... Very much reminds me of something that I think was originally in Mistara. Ooh, there was okay. There was this whole thing, which for those of you who don't remember the short rest or weren't around when basic D and D was a thing, Mistara was an alternate campaign setting, and part of that world featured an entire region where there was a metal that effectively infected people if they touched it, really. And it caused a persistent infection that had to be dealt with and had mechanical influences and all that. So this seems very similar, but it does work differently than the original Corruption did. I mean, obviously, because the original Corruption was designed for first edition. One right. thing that did confuse me, though, I wasn't sure why they went with charisma saves, because diseases and infections are almost always constitution saves unless you're dealing with something esoteric like a, you know, mind flayer disease or something like that. Well, actually, it's because the Ruidium is um, the... So, I don't want to get too spoilery about the actual story, but basically, it's the emotions of the central thing that are manifest in the form of an element. Yeah, it's it's, it's all, the, all the emotions that kind of seep into this thing, and then, you know, stuff and pressure and magic and... Hey, minerals! But if we rub these minerals on our swords, they get really good. Also, we get really sick, but the swords get really good. So, basically, Ruidium is just the passive-aggressive manifestation of Matt Mercer's angst <laughs> about all the people complaining on their stream. I mean, I, I'd more take it to be like the tortured soul of an artist, given crystal um, form and then same thing. infectious. <laughs> yeah, you know. But yeah, the... The actual mechanics are interesting. I like that they... I like how they tied it in with exhaustion because exhaustion is a really good mechanic on its own, but it's very much an all-or-nothing thing. Right. You can't use it very often or you end up really debilitating the player characters if you're the DM. Um, like, you can pretty much just get away with one level of exhaustion before you start just ruining people's day. But Ruidium 
strikes what I think is a really good balance of you know that you have an infection. It has immediate effects on your character. They're mechanical effects, but it's not a death spiral. Like, you're not condemned to doing nothing while you have this, which it would be if it just stacked on exhaustion levels. Right, and exhaustion, I feel, is one of those mechanics that offers a lot of potential but generally gets underused when new mechanics are tying into things. So I'm glad to see it actually being given a bit of a spotlight here. I also thought that it was really interesting the way that you can either use Ruidium to, you know, enhance weapons or get better armor or whatever, or use it as a spell component, because then it actually makes it a valuable resource for casters as well as martial classes. Like, everyone can benefit from Ruidium in some way. Are you sure it doesn't cause that spiral? Because it does say that it's... As soon as they make contact with it, they have to make that charisma saving throw. Yeah, but the what I meant by that is I it would create a death spiral if it was like you get a level of exhaustion when you hit it, and then if you start failing, you get more levels of exhaustion. Because exhaustion eventually, or actually very quickly, hamstrings your ability to make saves. Uh, whereas the way they implemented it, it does damage to you whenever you change exhaustion level up or down, mm -hmm. which means you can save yourself from exhaustion, but you're still getting hit with it, as opposed to a lot of other effects just sort of stack on the penalties on top of you being exhausted, which is where the, the spiral comes in. Okay, but I can see this possibly causing a spiral because I would and granted uh, the the book may have different rules on this but I would see that as every time they touch their Ruridium Lace sword they have to make the saving throw I don't think it's that punishing yeah it's um, it's, okay, it's when they come into contact with the with the raw form of it I believe okay because the I mean the thing is designed to take you from 3 to 12 and you can only completely get rid of it at level 12, so to be stuck with it for that long and being that punishing, I don't think they're taking that many cues from wizards at level 1, or trying or to run Katie. something is all that, yeah, yeah, or yeah. something like Dark Souls was where I was going to go with it. <laughs> okay, so I see what you mean by saying it's only when you come in contact with the raw Ruidium. However, the Ruidium weapons do have a corruption component on them, where when you roll a one on an attack roll, then you have to make that charisma saving throw again. And if you fail, you gain that level of exhaustion. Now, I see that this is only on a roll of one. However, have you guys seen mine and Gath's rolls on D&D Beyond? Because <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. More than 50% of my rolls are natural ones no matter what die I'm using, and it's usually on a d20. So at least playing with D&D &D Beyond, this would be a death spiral for me. Well, you've also got the, uh, if you have the Ruidium weapon, which is when you make a roll uh, of a one on an attack roll, you've got to make the saving throw or gain a level of exhaustion. If you happen to be wearing the armor, and that has a corruption of when you roll a one on a saving throw, you gain a level of exhaustion. So 
someone with your luck with the dice, if you were wearing both the armour and the weapon, you could end up taking two levels of exhaustion and 4d6 psychic damage. Uh-huh. <laughs> back to back. So basically, if your dice hate you, and I mean, as a player, my dice hate me. My dice love me when I'm the DM, but when I'm the player, my the dice hate me so much. You, statistically, <laughs> it's fine. It all balances out. Oh yeah, it's true. But you know, I'm just Again, saying that's there's that's still across a... the entire universe of possibilities. I've never said that any one person is going to have you know get their come up in someday. But the point remains that there is still the potential of a death spiral from this. If you're you and very unlucky. Um, if if you're me or Gath, you sh- you should see Gath in my campaign. It's like every role is four or less. Every role. <laughs> so, outside of uh, Ruidium, I did think that this adventure was interesting in that it feels to me very much like, as I said in the copy, it's a critical role resource for critical role fans, and I, I don't think that anybody outside of the fandom, other than things like taking Ruidium, are really going to find a whole lot of utility in this book. It's not like the Netherdeep can just be dropped into Eberron and and renamed, uh, as you can do with a lot of the other generic adventures that they've ran. And there's a lot of stuff in here where if you don't know Critical Role, then you are going to be left wondering, and you have to, you know, (laughs) as wizards themselves agree, you know, do homework, buy a whole additional book, and then you might be able to run this adventure. I feel that this probably would have been better off something more akin to an Adventurers League path rather than a hardcover release but at the same time I'm also kind of glad to see that they are giving additional resources into existing worlds without the fear of having to make something for everyone and I I feel that that's something that Wizards have done a lot of in the past. Yeah but I wonder if anyone except Critical Role can get away with it you mean like there's not uh, just, you know, using Eberron as an example. You don't think that there would be enough uh, Eberron fans to just purchase a specific Eberron adventure book? Well, I don't know about that, but it's more that I don't think Wizards acknowledges that there are enough fans of any other IP right? Okay, to make that happen. Because, like, I mean, if you look at to use a recent example, if you look at Dragonlance, there are enough Dragonlance fans where I am willing to bet you could make a Dragonlance resource that basically does the same thing. It says, look, Dragonlance has a bunch of restrictions around it. It's not just the Forgotten Realms. You need to know what those are. And once you do, here's a resource for it. There are enough people, I think, who know Dragonlance well enough or know where to refresh their memory that a resource like that would be successful. I don't think wizards will be sold on making one like that, to say nothing of something like Dark Sun or Eberron, to your point. I feel like it is a little bit of a gotcha if you're not already into it, because then you've got however many hours of Critical Role to catch up on slash reading the Wildmount resource. But at the same time, I feel like it's at least good for ideas to add to your own campaign 
maybe not necessarily to buy the entire book just to um, just to have to go buy and invest more time in other resources as well. Yeah, I mean, the one thing that I will give this book is it is very character-driven, very RP-driven. So if you're after something like a incredibly fleshed-out character, then you could certainly take one of the rival adventuring party and drop them in, because those, they have like three paragraphs just on their general persona, before you even get into the stats, before you even get into their individual roleplay lines and things. So certainly from a story perspective, if you're looking for inspiration absolutely it's just that you couldn't do the sort of thing for example of i'm playing in a forgotten realms campaign i need a quick npc scrolly scrolly oh i'll take uh urban waste walker and drop him in because all of his stuff is is tied into various cities in critical role he's gone through a certain clan upbringing that wouldn't be applicable he has friends that are kind of high up in the ruling dynasty and you know there's there's things like this that just wouldn't immediately make it drag and droppable like a lot of things in D&D tend to be transplantable which in itself isn't a bad thing and especially if you're a fan of critical role this is this is really good stuff it almost reads more like a a, a piece of fiction at times just one that you can also play I, I would agree with that and the interesting thing is is that's how setting guides and setting adventures used to be in D&D. Like, if mm-hmm. you picked up a Dark Sun adventure, for example, there would be whole pages of material that was only suitable for use in Dark Sun. Like, you, if you wanted to transplant it to another location, you had to do a lot of, like, mechanical or RP surgery on it to make it fit. And same thing with, like, classes and racial options and it's yeah I'm not sure what if anything it says about the direction Wizards is going with D&D or critical role as an IP but this is a very atypical resource and at the same time it is both appealing to newer players and hearkening back to traditional methods of making D&D resources, which is a really odd dichotomy. Right, and this, I think, what you've hit on there is actually true. This is atypical for a 5th edition resource. It is not atypical of D&D. And just to be clear, if anybody thought that I meant that this was a bad publication for that, absolutely not. I think that we do need more focused resources. But if you were to look at things like, I I realise these are source books rather than adventure books, but if you take things like uh, Tasha's Guide and Xanathar's Guide, they are all player slash DM focused. They are all trying to serve a little bit of everything for everybody and then end up being kind of weaker than some of the things that used to get in the pre-fifth edition days where you would get a very focused book on a particular subject like Fizzburns is probably one of the outside of this resource closest types to the older productions that we used to get right because if you're not into dragons Fizzburns is why buy it yeah yeah why would you not be into dragons that's horrible there are are some people with you know special circumstances some people like dungeons yeah (laughs) All right, let's move on before we get letters. (laughs) (laughs) 
Just uh, on that though, do you think that given that we've had the Fizzbins release and given that we've had the Critical Role release, you mentioned earlier that obviously Critical Role is like a really big IP and to, to quote you, Ostron, they can get away with it. Do you think that they're potentially using this as a test to see when they have one of their most popular IPs, how much a single focused resource sells within that IP, i.e. are we likely to see more single focused resources going forward in the pre-5th edition style? I want to say yes, but the cynical part of me says no. I mean, that could just sum up 204 episodes of Heroes Rise, really. (laughs) So, I would not use the word test. At least not in the test that you're talking about. I think... I think this is a test, but I think it's only a test of can critical role focused resources sell well enough to justify their publication. I don't think anyone at Wizards of the Coast is thinking, if this does well, can we explore other IPs to do it with? I think this is 100% just, can we sell critical role only stuff and will it perform well enough? And... If it does perform well, we're going to see more critical role-focused resources that are quote-unquote official. And if it doesn't, then this is the last one of these we're ever going to see. I don't think its success or failure is going to have any impact on resources for any other settings or IPs that are tied into d and I guess the flip side of it is they could be trying to get critical role fans to actually play D&D. Which, that might sound like a very stupid thing to say, but in case people out there don't know, the vast majority of Critical Role fans are Critical Role fans. They're not fans of D&D. They don't play D&D. They will buy this resource because it's a Critical Role thing. So maybe they're trying to lure people over to the dice rolling side of the fence. I did want to briefly touch on the Fragments of Suffering. Yeah, go for it. Because those were really interesting to me because they're essentially magic items but they are trade-off magic items like you get a really good benefit but each one along with its benefit also comes with a drawback which i personally and my players can attest to this i design a lot of magic items that work like this the way they will work is they give you a very powerful benefit but there's also a severe kick in the teeth to go along with it. And I like those because it allows you, particularly in 5th edition, to work against bounded accuracy without completely breaking the game. Because one of the challenges that a lot of people have had with magic items in D&D is... If you push the limits on bounded accuracy too much, you can very quickly mess up the power curve, which, for those not steeped in game mechanic vocabulary, means if you hand a character a plus three sword, they're going to be able to wipe the floor with most enemies that the rest of their party will have average difficulty with. And if you throw something at them that they're going to have difficulty with, the rest of the party is going to find it completely impossible. Items like this, where, for example, this isn't one of them, but an example would be, you have a plus three sword, but every time you score a critical hit, it damages both the creature you hit and you. It allows them to use the item if they want, 
and you don't have to worry about completely rewriting all the encounters to mitigate that because the character you've just given the character enough rope to hang themselves with if they continue using the item and they can't well i mean they can but there isn't fault lying with you if they essentially blow themselves up while using it because you know you put the warning label front and center yeah one of these fragments um the so everything has benefit and drawback in this particular one the fragment of pity is benefit each time you spend a hit die to regain hit points you regain additional hit points equal to your proficiency bonus and i was like that's that's kind of cool that i can see how that would come drawback you have disadvantage on death saving throws that's i get it i do and i like it because now it really forces a choice between do i want to try and go for the benefit knowing that i'm gonna have this drawback it's just yeah that real a or b choice a bit like what they do with the ruidium where it's like you can choose to do this but you're gonna suffer Mm. those kinds of mechanics yeah i i like that and the i really like sort of ramping it up to the higher level the fragment of rancor it's when you hit a creature with an attack you can either do an extra 2d6 psychic damage to them or 4d6 psychic damage to every creature within five feet of it and you can only do that once every short or long rest but the drawback is whenever you fail a saving throw of any kind if you're not unconscious, you take 2d6 psychic damage, which as a DM, that provides so many different opportunities because you can turn their life into a nightmare whenever you'd like. Uh, because it's you an know, every saving throw thing and not just a once per long rest thing, yeah. Right. So, you know, you can let them have their glory by f- throwing like a mob of creatures at them that all bunch up together so they walk up laughing and just hit them once and blow up the entire group. And then if they're getting too full of themselves, you just throw them against five wizards that are all casting a chill touch on them. (laughs) It's like, okay, you now have to make six saving throws, which the attacks aren't going to do a lot of damage, but if you fail, you're going to kill yourself. This segment of Heroes Rise sponsored by the Killer DM. (laughs) And finally in our D&D news roundup, the official Wizards D&D Twitter posted a somewhat cryptic tweet recently. The tweet says, Through the depths of the ethereal plane is a beacon of possibility and adventure. Gaze into the crystals and tell us what you see. Accompanied by an image of what appears to be a book cover, heavily distorted by pinkish crystals resembling shards of a watermelon jolly rancher. Curiously, a similar image was shared on Instagram that initially looked identical but had very subtle variations. Further, the book's writer, Ajit George, then put out a tweet saying four days and then a string of emojis. A gem, a sun, the Milky Way, a bone, and a castle. So given all that, we're expecting the announcement will happen on Tuesday the 22nd of March, the day before this episode airs, so you'll already know the title. But if there's one thing we excel at around here, it's rampant, although often wrong, speculation, and we, and in this case, we primarily means Lennon, couldn't resist talking about it. We'll have a zoomed and enhanced version that we also flip reversed and merged both the Instagram and Twitter images together in the show notes for those who want to play along at home. But for those of us around the table, what do you make of this? So, yeah, I'm glad that you brought up that it's mostly me because, yeah, when I saw this, I kind of, my my spidey sense started tingling and I got out the tinfoil. Yeah, it turns that's... out I wasn't properly earthed. 
That's that's not your spidey sense. Right. Okay. It's do, do I lick the brown wire or the blue? I forget. Anyway, when just I, lick them both at once. It'll be fine. <laughs> and then make a saving throw. Um, yeah. When I when I saw this, I started piecing it together and like trying to overlay one image on the other and. Uh, I was just having, you know, a grand old puzzle solvey time. Um, and it was only when I put the images together and saw that tweet, and I just very, you know, blasely in the Heroes Rise staff channel just went, This is going to be a marketplace where they're selling bones of a gem dragon. And then this little light bulb went off in my head, and I was like, Oh, hang on. In, in this image, those, are, those aren't crystals. They're like, they're like ruby color. And. There was like a gem dragon Sardior, wasn't there? Who let's just activate the 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 way back machine because I'm not using Rostro for this. In episode 186, we actually said this about Sardior. Several things just pretty much rewrote Sardior. And that actually surprised me that they did so much redaction, I guess, on him. I really like how even though I'm sad about what seems to have happened to Sardior that we don't really know the details of, but that sorrow is echoed in Fisben's words whenever he mentions Sardior. Especially when he starts talking about the Topaz dragons, he's got a note in there that says, every once in a while when I'm talking to a Topaz dragon, the sunlight will hit them just right and I'll think I'm seeing my Sardior again. So based on the fact that Ryu noticed Sardior wasn't around a lot and was wondering what happened to him, and then this is an image that has rubies on it, and the tweet with bones and gems and, you know, radiance and castles and things, I'll come to that a little bit in a second, I think we're going to find out what happened to Sardior. I think that that's where this is pointing towards. And then, when you look at the image, I think the title is Journey into the Radiant Citadel. And I realise that this is an audio production, so everybody will need to see the image to be able to go check out the link in the show notes, because it's definitely there. All of that together, that's what I think we're getting. Am I, am I just mental, Ostron? Yeah, cool. Ryu, <laughs> what what are your thoughts on my complete lead-induced hallucinations? I mean, I could follow your train of thought, kind of. Cool. But I would not have jumped there. Well, most people wouldn't. Let's be fair. If there's yeah. one thing I've put points into, it is jumping to conclusions. But at the same time, at least 50% of the time that you have had a completely off-the-wall <laughs> tinfoil hat theory like this, it it actually happened. So, I don't know, you could be right. There's a 50-50 chance, right? I mean, that, that just means that the whole broken <laughs> clock is right twice a day thing, right? You know, it's... Yeah. Yeah, I'm not sure I would attribute 50% on that. <laughs> I um, wouldn't either. So... Before I get out the anti-aircraft gun to just shoot so many holes in this, um, <laughs> is I want to see, is the internet sold on Journey into the Radiant Citadel, or did you come up with that yourself? There's a lot of talk around what it could be, but I think looking at those 
words it looks like it says journey into the radiant citadel other people agree some people say um that radiant seems to be the word that everybody agrees um some people say it's crystals and things like that i'll give you i'll give you radiant like that one i can see i cannot give you i can't give you journey like i just can't the the first letter is way too wrong you don't think Um, okay all right and it looks like there's another t up there okay anyway yeah i'm not i'm not sold on journey i'll give you radiant i might be sold on citadel so radiant citadel might be the last part of it okay secondly those don't look like rubies to me well red crystals i mean I was... Yeah, but the... I mean, at least in this image, the red is wrong. Which might just be me being nitpicky about it. I mean, I'm I'm but, the worst person to ask about shades of red, honestly. Yeah, I, I know. But it's... <laughs> yeah, I I don't... Ugh. That's That's fine. You don't. That's cool. We can accept that. Otherwise, though, there's some quite interesting imagery in this. It looks to be some sort of marketplace with a sort of neon sign holding up a potion symbol like a sort of thing that you would normally get on a shop or a tavern but the fact that it is so bright like it really stands out in this image oh see i thought that was something silver with light reflecting off of it rather than something that was self-illuminating oh well it could be yeah actually i never never considered that because i guess the inside of the shop is quite well lit isn't it like the inside of the market store there well based on the number of things they have glowing <laughs> yeah. But yeah, the it uh, does oh, sorry. the background reminds me of the Mordenkainen cover. Yeah, there is that sort of um whatever that thing is which on the on the Heroes Rise flip enhanced reversed image is on the left but in the actual uh tweet it's on the white on on the white. On the right, I'm not sort of I'm not entirely sure what that is and it is both curious and freaky at the same time. It, it looks like a sort of, I was going to say hamster, and now I'm thinking of miniature giant space hamsters, and I'm not sure where my brain's going with this now. I know what you're talking about. The image is being refracted several times. I don't think that that's one image of a single creature. I think it's possibly items around this marketplace that the image refraction just somehow lined up to make it look like it could be a creature just right there. See, I just thought that was a statue. Well... As we said, Ajit George posted that it was being revealed in four days, so by the time the show airs, you will have answers, you will get to see exactly how tinfoil hatty I was, or how accurate Ostron's air cannons were, I guess. Or anti-air cannons, I guess, that you were trying to blow holes in. Either way, stop firing cannons around here, it's bad for the paintwork. And now that we're all caught up with the latest D&D news, let's head into the archives of Candlekeep for a rerun of Excursion to Exandria. I require access! Oh, you come to the right place, my boy. Ha! My aim is improving. <laughs> they better watch out when I show up. Lennon, why are you Eldritch blasting coins? I mean, if you want to keep me from stealing them, I suppose that's one way to do it, but it seems a little expensive. No, no, no. See, I'm just preparing for our trip to Exandria. Don't. How is that supposed to help with Exandria? Ah, uh, here we go. 
Well, I read up on it, just like Ostrontodus do, and I found out it was infested with critters. So I figured, if I can practice aiming at small moving targets, I can hire myself out as an exterminator and make back all the money that I'm using for target practice in the first place. What? Don't look at me, you asked. So he just saw the bit about critters and then started doing this. He knows nothing else about Exandria. I can't guarantee that, but I know where the smart money is. All right, here, we'll share my notes and Ostron will just talk because he usually knows this stuff somehow anyway. Critical Role has been a geek culture phenomenon almost since its debut in 2015, and its popularity and influence have only grown since then. Despite being new on the scene, as of 2021, it remains only one of three fully third-party settings to get official resources printed by Wizards of the Coast, the others being Eberron and Acquisitions Incorporated. Still, not everyone watches the shows, and there are a fair number of people with limited knowledge of Critical Role's world or setting. Even with the resources related to it, they're hesitant to have anything to do with the setting, believing they need to go back through hundreds of hours of play to catch up. This primer we're going through certainly won't give you an in-depth knowledge of the setting that your average critter has, though. And note, critter is the term for the fans of Critical Role, not an infestation of small animals as I had been previously led to believe. However, if the show is totally foreign to you and reading the summaries in the various resources seems like too much work, hopefully we'll be able to give you enough information that you can at least get a feel for the place. So, the planet that Critical Role stories have all taken place on so far is called Exandria. It is wholly a creation of Matt Mercer, though of course he was influenced by multiple sources as most writers and creators are. Unlike Eberron, Exandria as a whole is very similar to the Forgotten Realms. In fact, it can actually be helpful to think of Exandria as a sort of parallel universe or reimagined version of Toril. Most of the major elements are the same, but the details, they can vary. Exandria's history is broken up into four ages. In the first of these, the main conflict was between the gods and the primordials, both of whom had risen out of the chaos that was the forming planet. The gods all wanted to create creatures that would run around on the planet doing things, and the primordials wanted all of those creatures to die and stop messing up their lakes and lava flows. To give the mortal beings a fighting chance, the gods gave them magic and created metallic dragons to help teach them how to use it. However, some of the gods had already given up on mortals and either washed their hands of the whole thing or threw in with the primordials. At the very least, they weren't willing to help the gods on the side of the mortals. This resulted in a huge war that ended with the primordials either ending up dead or trapped somewhere, and the so-called betrayer gods locked away where they couldn't do any more harm. To celebrate their victory and thank the gods, the mortals at the time founded the city of Asselheim. Remember that name, because it comes up again later. After the rush of founding a city and running a war got old, the mortals all decided, hey, this magic stuff is pretty neat, and started playing around with it. Eventually, a few of them said, hey, I can do the same things the gods can. And then, one of them did. A woman whose name was lost to time decided to challenge the god of death to a fight, won, and then made herself the Raven Queen. After seeing that, another genius named Vespin Chloris figured that getting the power of the gods would be even faster if it came directly from the source. Since the prime deities weren't sharing, he decided opening up the betrayer god's prison and asking them would be the next best thing. You can guess how that turned out. The Betrayer Gods set up their own kingdom in record time and launched an assault directly on Vasselheim. The city held, but it was the first shot fired in the war that would define the Third Age of Exandria, which is called the Calamity. 
The major problem the good forces had to deal with was Tharizdun, a being possibly older than all the other gods who likes death and driving people insane. To get rid of it, they needed to enact a ritual called the Rites of Prime Banishment, which required the participation of a lot of the Prime Deities and ended up with Ayun severely wounded. That fortunately worked, but Exandria was a mess. Continents had been rearranged, a full two-thirds of the population of the planet was just dead, and Vasselheim was the only remaining thing that even qualified as a city. In an effort to limit the amount of divine power involved directly on the planet, the Prime Deities created the Divine Gate to prevent gods from directly manifesting or interfering with mortal affairs. That brings us to the fourth age, called post-divergence, the divergence referring to the part where the gods adopted their hands-off policy with mortals. This is the age where all of the Critical Role campaigns have taken place. Geographically, there are five recognized continents on the planet. Tal'Dorei is arguably the most well-known, as it was the setting for most of the activity in Campaign 1 of Critical Role. It again has a lot of similarities in tone and structure to the Sword Coast of the Forgotten Realms setting, although unlike the city-state model of the Sword Coast, most of the human population of Tal'Dorei is governed by a republic of the same name. Campaign 2 focused on the continent of Wildmount, which has more of a harsh feel to it overall. The climate is analogous to Western Russia and Eastern Europe, and the political landscape mostly focuses on the sometimes hot, sometimes cold war between the Dwendalian Empire and the Kryn Dynasty, many facets of which the critical role group the Mighty Nine were involved in. Wildmount is also historically significant because the large area of badlands on the continent contained the former site of Gordranus, which the betrayer gods used as a base of operations during the Calamity War. The rest of the continents are less defined as they haven't been focused on during any of the campaigns yet. Isilra has a Scandinavian, Northern Canadian, or Russian feel to its climate and landscape, with lots of mountains and snowy plains. Its claim to fame is that Vasselheim is located there. Vasselheim, by the way, is what you get if you somehow combine Jerusalem, Mecca, Bodhgaya, and the seven holy cities of Hinduism all in one place. Since the gods of Exandria literally spent a lot of time hanging out in that city since almost the beginning of time, it's considered the most holy site on the planet, and it has temples upon temples for people to worship. Also, they're not big on arcane magic. It's highly regulated, and certain parts of the city don't allow it at all. The continent of Marquette is designed mostly to be your stereotypical desert wasteland. What isn't sand is mountains, and very few people live there because it's really hard to do. The few settlements that exist are almost all on the coasts. As of this recording, not much is known about Marquette, but it's going to be the setting for the Call of the Netherdeep when it releases, so probably more to come there. The final continent is called Shattered Teeth, though continent should really be in quotes here. The Shattered Teeth are technically just a collection of 43 islands in the Lycidian Ocean. Two major groups of people live there. The Ascended Host, who are mostly fishing people who worship dreams, and the Wonderman Assembly, descendants of representatives from a trading company that wrecked on the islands and just decided to set up shop there. As you might expect, they're focused mostly on trade. As with any large-scale living setting where a lot of adventures have taken place, it's difficult to pinpoint other things that everyone would need to know. As with Eberron or the Sword Coast, there is a lot of history tied up in multiple different locations, although Exandria at least doesn't have the issue of multiple editions containing contradicting information that you would need to wade through. One theme that does run through almost all areas of Exandria, however, is an obsession with artifacts from the Second and Third Age. 
During the Second Age, there was basically unrestricted research into and use of magic, and then during the Third Age, mortals were forging items and weapons that could literally affect gods, often with the gods' help. The two major powers in Wildmount, for example, are basically in an arms race to see who can dig up more and more powerful magical artifacts from around the ruins of Gordranus. Overall, there are two major benefits to campaigning in Exandria. The first, obviously, is if there are Critical Role fans who love the setting and want to have adventures there, either in locations they're familiar with or exploring new areas of the same world. The other draw is what we alluded to in the beginning. Exandria is very close to being a parallel universe of the Forgotten Realms. You may have noticed in the history a lot of names and creatures that are identical, and that carries throughout the setting. Exandria offers a place where people familiar with D&D won't have to relearn a bunch of new names for gods, spells, creatures, and sapient beings, but the backstories and histories will be different enough that they won't immediately know all the lore associated with it. The first Critical Role campaign, for example, focused on a fight with Vecna. The Vecna in Exandria function a lot like the one from Greyhawk in-game, but their histories are very, very different. Another benefit is you don't necessarily have to buy an Exandria-specific resource to run the games. As mentioned, the creatures and player races and so forth are all basically the same, and thanks to Critical Role being a 21st century phenomenon among geeks, most of the history and lore information is recorded online. If you are planning to revisit specific areas mentioned in the show, then having the books to hand is probably a good idea, but if you just want to use the setting, then you can probably take what you already have and run with it. Okay. That is, in fact, more than I knew before. Uh, thanks. Yeah, about that. What now? Okay, so I get that he wasn't prepared, because that's how he always is. What I'm wondering is why you just let him go with it? without any attempt to help or correct him. Well, I figured we'd just get to Vasselheim, he'd start blasting rodents, get arrested for unrestricted magic use, and then things would just sort themselves out. Wait, wait, you were gonna let him get arrested? And what was gonna happen when we had to come home? That part of the operation was still in the planning stages. Oh, you, you and I, are going to have words after we clear out the scrying pool. What news from the north? Join us of Rohan! Message for you, son. Last time we asked you, the listeners out there in the multiverse, so what is your take on the new Kender? Are the changes a necessary revision, or is this a pointless change that shouldn't have been done? And regarding the new backgrounds and subclass, do you think some of the new mechanics are hints at broader changes coming in the next evolution, or are they changes specifically made to try to fit Dragonlance into 5th edition? iSpectre on Discord wrote in to say, Kender are brightly colored, hopelessly optimistic kleptomaniacs with ADHD. I can see how that description likely falls under problematic, but to remove it removes what makes them Kender and not halflings. They either need to accept the Kender as is or choose to leave them out entirely. I hope the new mechanics are hints at a broader, more versatile feat system. I like having mechanical options that support the story of the character. I also want more meaningful choices to change my character as I level up. Currently, most significant choices are made once the subclass is chosen, and that often leads to stale feeling in mid to late levels. Not exactly the question, but I like the Sorcerer subclass attempt. It tries to address the biggest complaint against Sorcerers, the very limited number of spells known. Like Ostron pointed out, to execute properly on this subclass, you have to pre-plan tactically, but at least now there are potential options. 
previous sorcerers felt overly limited. Pretentious Latin name on Discord says, As someone who really liked the Cosmic Sorcerers from 4th edition, which swapped between Sun, Moon, and Stars, I'm a little bit sad that the Lunar Sorcerer seems to be reflavoring and repackaging that space-themed sorcerer niche. I think I liked the old flavor better, even if the difference isn't that huge. The feats looked like a big departure from the old system. It seemed like they'd been hesitant to bring back feat chains from the 3.5 days. Maybe they really want to push DMs to use feats as quest-slash-story rewards moving forward? And Dunder Hill on Discord says these Kender are not Kender, and I don't think they'll satisfy anyone. Fans of Dragonlance will not recognise Kender in this new version, and people new to Dragonlance will wonder why we have a race of trash talkers with magic bags. How does every member of a race have the same magic item? Where 3rd edition's Kender encourage problematic behaviour, this version feels more like simply giving up on the idea of representing Kender in 5th edition at all. Overall, this UA illuminates the problems with adapting Dragonlance to 5th edition. Neither Knight of Salamnia nor Mage of High Sorcery makes any sense as backgrounds in the setting. Adding alignment mechanics is a departure from 5th edition's abandonment of alignment otherwise. There are plenty of house rules and hacks out there for playing Dragonlance using 5th edition. I've run a short campaign in Kryn using 5e, running some of the original modules. I just don't think Wizards of the Coast did a good job here, and it's easy to find better options and ideas for adapting Kryn. If we do get official adaptations for settings like Dark Sun, Planescape, and That Which Shall Not Be Named, I don't think this UA bodes well, and I am glad that there is a robust design community out there that has already done a lot of this work. Electric Sausage Gravy on Discord says, I think the point of this UA is to see how much they can quote mess with, unquote, and is not only for what they could do in 5th edition, but what needs to be fixed for the next evolution. I don't think this version of Kender will make it past the UA, and I don't think they expected it to. As for utilizing alignment, I think it's a good move. People automatically jump on the wizard's did away with alignment talk, which is definitely their own fault. I think in trying to make sure no or very few races or creatures were inherently good or evil, they took away the need for alignment. Finding ways to bring it back for more role-playing choices is a good move. I think we've become too comfortable with the Unearthed Arcanas that were almost perfect lately, that they see little to no change from UA to final release. The result of this is we tend to look at Unearthed Arcanas more as sneak peeks rather than playtest content. Going forward, I'd like to see more Unearthed Arcanas that challenge the norm and get people vocal. They've given us a great tool to help shape the game, and if we're filling out the surveys and giving feedback, we have the opportunity to see things change the best ways possible. We are not given this opportunity by anyone else that I know of, at least not on as big a scale as Wizards, so I suggest we take advantage of the opportunities given to us and encourage our fellow gamers and hobbyists to do the same, instead of complaining or lamenting after the fact. Phoenix on Discord said, Kinder who don't steal, Kenku who speak. What's next? Maybe in the next version of Ravenloft, Strahd won't be a vampire? I mean, why not a noble with an iron deficiency? The Illuminati at D&D should just leave well enough alone. They're treating the players as if they're children. They need to allow us to make our own decisions, whether they be good or bad. Don't homogenize everything. Go with the rules of the magic school bus. Take chances, make mistakes, and get messy. As for the backgrounds, it doesn't matter. They're trying to make players more powerful at first level so new players won't feel inadequate. Most new players come from a video game background and want to feel as powerful as those characters. They want the instant gratification without the work. They're very lazy when it comes to TTRPGs. In all fairness, I probably would have been that way also if I had all the stimulus and distraction that they do. If something is hard, just find something else to do. I didn't have that. There was nothing else to do. Nothing else like D&D. I'm lucky because of it. There's a slight hint of 
get off my lawn in that last one. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm not saying that it's not entirely undeserved, though. Mm. I think I, occasionally some lawns do need to be got off of. I do actually find his point interesting, though, that beefing up first-level characters may be what they're going for, because as we've pointed out in the past... Wizards modules are very unkind to first level characters. Yes. So giving them a bit Just of a, a power bit. boost may not be a bad thing in this case. And that was an angle we hadn't really discussed previously. Yeah, that is that is true. It will make level one characters a lot more survivable. Having said that, the the instant gratification without work, I'm not convinced on that bit. I think it's like you said, the, the video game mindset might have fallen in there, but also this kind of boils down to whether you're playing more of a simulation or you're playing a game. Like, if you want the more simulation aspect of it, then yes, you don't want everything, quote, handed to you at first level. But if you are playing it for a game because you want to feel like big damn heroes, well, firstly, I would suggest not starting at level one. That seems silly. Uh, <laughs> but secondly, I don't think that there's anything wrong with being given a bit of a boost because you are supposed to be the adventurers that broke the mold you aren't just the everyday person you are something that is different and special so also not all video games are instant gratification i mean have you played a souls like yeah though his point is that if you know some people would try a souls like immediately drop it and then there's five thousand other options yeah i can see that I also like what uh, Electric Sausage Gravy was saying about, yes, the last few UAs have been sneak peeks rather than actual playtest, and I'm hoping, I think that's what rubbed me the wrong way about this one, is that if it is a sneak peek rather than a playtest, I am not looking forward to it. If it is an actual playtest, then I hope that they will take the feedback on board and get things changed. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I was going to say concerns me, is I'm fine with them doing it as a playtest. It's just that with the playtest, you like to see iterations, and up to this point, almost all the UAs, to his point, have been, here's the UA, and now we're going to print. And yeah. if there was any feedback given, it wasn't reflected. Or, I mean, it could have been, like you said, most of the, I mean, most of the UAs that have come out haven't really been that bad. There haven't been substantial problems with them or substantially controversial changes like we identified here. And, I mean, we did we did see them drop the dual typing on the creatures mm. for... Um, Still think that's a shame. Yeah, uh, but apparently there was... I mean, at least in theory, there were some issues with it. Mm. I think a lot of my fear here is that we only ever see the UA... And then it goes to print, at least up to this point. So if people are giving a lot of feedback, are we ever going to see what that feedback was and what the next try is going to be? Uh, because yeah. if it's if it's something that needs a minor tweak, you know, it's I sort of trust them more to go, OK, we pointed out what needs a minor tweak, just adjust it a little and then you're fine going to print. With this, it's like, no, 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 you you dropped the ball completely yeah, it on needs this. A rework, we need a, a resubmit, tweet. and we need to know what's coming next before this goes anywhere near real life. I mean, just metagaming it a little bit here. I think this may be more playtesty type material because we know that the 
next book that they're actually printing is the standalone version of Mordenkainen Presents Monsters of the Multiverse. I don't think the thing that we had a teaser image for just then is actually going to be the Dragonlance setting book. There was nothing about that teaser image that screamed Dragonlance to me, which means that considering they haven't actually even announced a Dragonlance book, it's just been heavily hinted at, we're probably not going to get it until end of the year, maybe even early next year. So there is every chance that this will have the possibility to be refined, potentially playtested again before delivery, or they could just take it and tweak it however they want, like, if they get that most people really want a proper, quote, theft mechanic in there, then they might just bundle one in without playtesting, or at least public playtesting. But I don't think that this is in imminent danger of being published. Yeah, and to your point, there was the UA on the Travelers of the Multiverse, which, you know, basically everybody said Spelljammer confirmed when that came out. Right. And we haven't seen anything about a Spelljammer resource. It could be in the Mordenkainen's one. Well, I think it's actually, if anything, that one is likely to be in what I will just, for the moment, call Journey into the Radiant Citadel because we don't actually have a title. Mm. But yeah, I think that there could be if that's a planar travel adventure, you can certainly sneak in a lot of spelljammery stuff throughout. Mm. You could. I'm not saying they will, I'm just saying you could. I'm not disagreeing with you, I'm just angry. <laughs> <laughs> and in general feedback, Tomasthenes on Twitter says, I'm not sure the title Kender Defender was completely deserved. Was it only me? I think I did more defense of them than I ever have done before. Yeah, I mean, you stuck up for them. In a backhanded compliment type of way, uh, it's sort of yeah. like it's sort of like you were standing at the gate of a city, facing down an invading army, and your primary argument was, "Look, this is the worst city on the planet, but it deserves to exist somewhere, so you can't destroy it." Right. I don't want you coming in here and causing three million dollars worth of improvement. Okay, go away. Yeah, basically that. However, that is still a defensive strategy. I mean, it's, again, it's, to use another analogy, it's sort of like going up in court saying, look, he couldn't have committed these three murders because he was home strangling his wife. That's... Right, but it's a defense. Yes. <laughs> well, I'm keeping the title. I'll allow it. And that brings us to this week's community questions. So we actually have a setting-focused resource for Critical Role, where it doesn't tie into the larger D&D multiverse very easily. Do you think this is a testbed for more focused resources down the line, or is it just a trial to see if Critical Role can support itself apart from the rest of D&D? And so the secret's out by now, but what did you think of our image analysis and tinfoil hattery? What other conclusions and speculation do you have now that the resource has been revealed? Details on how you can get in touch coming up next. And so this brings us to the end of the 204th entry into our Chronicle. We'll be back with our 205th entry on March 30th. But before we go, we want to know, for you, dear listener, how was the show? Whatever your thoughts or feelings, let us know. You can comment on the show's post on our website, heroesrisepodcast.com. You can find us on all good social media at Heroes Rise D&D. You can email us, sendingstone at heroesrisepodcast.com. Or you can chat with us live and join the Heroes Rise community at discord.heroesrisepodcast.com. This show isn't just a one-way conversation, and we always love to hear from you. So take a minute and tell us your thoughts. 
Make sure that you're never caught in the middle of a quest without us by subscribing to us on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, or anywhere else that good podcasts can be found, or through our feed at feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. And if you like the sound of what we do, there are many ways that you can help support us. Heroes Rise is an official Dice Envy affiliate. Get yourself some incredibly awesome dice that will not only make you the envy of your table, but will also help your favourite D&D podcast. Just use our affiliate link, heroesrisepodcast.com slash diceenvy, and be sure to enter the code HEROESRISE at checkout and save yourself an extra 10%. You can also help support the show by subscribing to our Patreon. Tiers start from $4 per month and give you raw recordings of the show before the Wednesday release, Heroes Rise t-shirts, pins, and a super secret patron lounge on our Discord server. Plus, occasionally you might get dragged into a recording or two for some dissonant whispers. Lucky you! To become a patron, just head on over to patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. And if a financial donation isn't your thing, that's cool too. Every time you share our show with friends, family, or your friendly local gaming store, you help our audience to grow, and that's ultimately why we do this. Thanks for all of your likes, shares, and retweets. We want to take a moment to thank our social media mage Ray Ray, our Conjuration Cabal Bloodlake, Indigo Spectre, and Gath Memvar, and our audio alchemists Mikey, Brenwin, and Tomasthenes. Special thanks go to our halfling moneylenders Marty Chidoric, The Despoiler, The Hobbyist, Randall Evans, Brewhammer, Wasabi, Rat Queen, Amber Squirrel Craning, and Strife. Vince Vep for all the awesome music you've heard throughout the show, be sure to check him out at vincevep.bandcamp.com and Low of Lowe's Lair, the designer of our banners and avatars. You can find him on Twitter at Lowe's underscore Lair and Facebook at facebook.com slash Lowe's Lair. But above all, we want to thank all of you for tuning in and listening to our tales this evening. And until our paths shall cross again, fare thee well, brave adventurers. was a very nice timed cough. Thank you. <coughs> okay. <laughs> Ugh, excuse me. All right, stop with that. <laughs> Still with us? Great. Call of the Neverdeep is an epic cryptic 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 Call of the Neverdeep is a beatboxing campaign set in 5th edition. <laughs> Please no. The book it's uh, yeah. <laughs> Wonderful story. Okay, the monastics of the cobalt soul and the occultists of the vanilla... Let me try that again. <laughs> the tweet says, Through the depths of the ethereal... Not ethereal, there's... Uh, no. As opposed to the outer ethereal? <sighs> I think outhereal. Outhereal. As someone who really liked the Cosmic Sorcerer from 4th edition, which swapped between sun, moon, and stars, I'm a little sad... No, that'll do. Well, Just leave it there. Just. I'm a little yeah. sad. Sorry, I'm going to sneeze. Hang on. <laughs> that, that's not in there. That's not what he said. Okay, I think I... Nope. <laughs> okay, I think I'm done now. <laughs> Electric Sausage Gravy on Discord says, I think you're all morons. I mean, yeah, that's basically <laughs> what it boils down to, but carry yeah, on. Read so the whole much. thing. Good. <laughs> Do I need to say that again? Yeah, you do. Yeah. Okay. But this time actually use the proper words.
Electric sausage. The proper words, Ostron. The proper ones. I think secretly Ostron. You can shut up now because whatever you were about to say has been completely invalidated. You forgot about that at symbol. Yeah, I assumed that was a typo rather than anything I needed to write out, but. Would you like me to beatbox?